Hey there, and thank you for tuning into the Headfirst podcast. My name is Joe O'Brien, and I run the Headfirst Instagram page. And this podcast topic is going to cover some of the behaviors and some of the habits that we can practice day to day in order to basically keep our mental health in check, to promote positive well being, and give ourselves the best opportunity to manage our mental health as effectively as possible. What I'd like everybody to leave with at the end of this podcast is some useful actions that you can implement into your day, um, into your routine, and realize how much of a contribution these sometimes basic skills or behaviors can have on your mind and have on your mental well-being. Now, before I get stuck into the content, it's really important to realize that although these might be predictors or correlates of positive mental health, you might see them as preventatives or resilience builders. Um, they might kind of support positive mental health. It's important to note that you can practice all of these things day to day and still struggle with your mental health. What they will hopefully do is kind of mitigate the risk. So they'll kind of reduce the, the risk to some extent or give you the best chance of having positive mental well-being. They're absolutely not to be used as a replacement for treatment or instead of going to see a professional or your GP. So most certainly don't do that. With that out of the way, though, let's take a look at some of the tips to help promote um, your mental well-being on a daily basis. I'm going to kick it off with gratitude. Being grateful and actively practicing gratitude has been the subject of quite a bit of the uh, psychological research in the last few years. I've seen it in papers. I've seen it on social media. So I'm going to start with that one because that's that's quite a big one. I actually did an uh, an Instagram post a while back on the things that make me happy, and I made a list of all the all the little things and some of the some of the bigger things that lift my mood. But you could also say that this is a list of things that I'm grateful for in my life, and it's it's quite a fun thing to do actually to make that list. So give it a go if you're commuting on a train or a bus, or if you're just listening going going to bed. Because there's so many things that when you actually think about it, there's so many things that can make you smile um, when you make a list of all those little things that make you happy. Anyway, that's essentially the basics of actively practicing gratitude. It's basically designating time um, to be grateful for something, to write it down or to consciously be aware of it or consciously think of it. uh, And it's a really nice practice to get started on if, if that's something that you're not doing. It's something really small that you can implement day to day. Gratitude is defined in some of the research as noticing and appreciating the positives in the world. And the reason it's a, it's a good practice or a nice habit to get into is that when people struggle with their mental health, they have a tendency to focus on the negatives. For example, someone who, who may struggle with mood or have depression can sometimes only see the negative side of everything. And it's a concept called cognitive filtering. So I'll give you an everyday example of cognitive filtering to help you kind of understand, for example, someone who's suffering in depression, why they might only see the negatives in in things. So have you ever been late for something where you're driving somewhere and you're in a rush and you say to the person you're traveling with, oh, I always, I always get stuck at the traffic lights when I'm in a rush. It is ridiculous. Well, from a psychological perspective, it's highly likely that you get stuck at the same amount of traffic lights over the course of any one journey as you ever have, but you're more likely to notice them when you're under time pressure or you're in a bad mood. And this happens for people when they struggle 
with something like depression, they might see the negatives in situations and may not be able to balance some of those positives alongside those negatives. But it's not ju just those people who, who are struggling with a mental health issue who, uh, who only see the negative side of things or, or maybe have a more negative perspective. It's actually human nature because negative emotions are tied to threat or loss. So from a survival perspective, it might be important to be able to focus on the negative. If you think about who survived better in the ice age, the person who thought the good weather would last forever, probably not, or the one who was convinced that there was gonna be a disaster right around the corner, probably did survive. But it's also important for our own emotional well-being and our mental well-being to be able to see the good too. What gratitude practice does is it gives us the opportunity and the skills to try and find the good in, in, in those kind of day-to-day -day situations. And it can be learned uh, judging by the research on gratitude interventions. You might be able to see why this practice might be helpful or, or good to do in today's society where a lot of negativity stems from comparison to others. So a focus on what we don't have, what we want to have or who we want to be rather than being able to reflect on our own lives and see what we do have. Now I've said this quote on podcasts before and I think I've used it on my page, maybe overuse it, but I absolutely love it. And the quote is, if you can't be grateful for what you have right now, what makes you think you'll be grateful with more? And it's so, so true. If you don't have the ability or the skill set to be able to find good things in your life, you'll struggle to do that no matter what circumstance you're in. So practicing gratitude might be a really good um, or an important skill to practice. And when I say practice, I mean practice because too often I think we, we kind of wait until something negative happens and then we decide, okay, well now I'll, I'll, try and, I'll try and find something I'm grateful for. But it doesn't really work like that. We can't just, I guess we can't just expect to have this skill out of nowhere or, or this habit available to us if we don't actually practice it more regularly. It's kind of like, uh, what's it like? It's kind of like thinking you can run a marathon because you have legs. <laughs> but without the practice, your legs are ultimately pretty useless when it gets into the heat of battle, when you're super tired or whatever it is in the middle of a marathon. Similar to gratitude and, and mindfulness as well and, and any kind of positive coping strategy, if you're practicing them regularly, you're far more likely to be able to engage in them, to use them, because most of us can't just switch on these skills like out of nowhere. You're not just gonna pluck these coping strategies um, out of the air. But what does gratitude practice actually entail? What, what is it, what does it look like? Well, like I mentioned, some of, these, some of these things really seem pretty simple, but when you actually go and try it, it can be pretty hard. So if I said to you, make a list of 50 things that make you happy or 50 things you're grateful for, you'll probably struggle to do it at the start. It might take quite a lot of effort. So these simple things can, can actually be pretty hard. The most standard gratitude intervention is writing down three positive things that happened in a day. So at the end of your day, just reflecting on your day and trying to pull out three positive things that happened. It can be as big or as small as you want. And then also, why, why did they happen? Um, that can be another kind of cool thing to reflect on. Another type of gratitude practice um, would be writing down a short letter to somebody who had done something kind and maybe hadn't been thanked properly or deserved more recognition or a specific type of thanks for what they'd done for you. But there's no, there is no magic trick here. Like this is not, this is not, you know, super revolutionary. It's, 
you can be super creative here. The sole purpose of these practices is just recognizing the good or the positives in your surroundings, in yourself, in others, and just in what's in your life right now. And whatever way you want to find uh, to do that, that's essentially the fundamental principle. The principle is finding something that's positive in your life. Find something that you're, very, that you're grateful for. Whatever way you want to do that is, is kind of up to you. What the research says about it is that there's definitely strong correlations between gratitude and subjective well-being and life satisfaction. But what's interesting is that there's researchers who believe that this relationship is causal. Meaning that in a, uh, engaging in gratitude can actually improve well-being by itself uh, and can be beneficial for those who struggle with their mental health. It's not a treatment and it shouldn't be used as a replacement for a conventional treatment, but it looks like there's some really positive studies to back up the fact that practicing gratitude and, and um, being grateful can just be a really good practice for, for promoting positive mental health or, or just your own positive well-being. Again, you don't need to struggle with a mental health disorder to engage in any of this. This is just simply to boost your own positive mental health. Um, the next thing I'm... Is that it on gratitude? I think so. Uh, the next thing we're going to talk about is, is sleep. Do not underestimate how important sleep is for mental health. I pr probably should have started with sleep, to be honest, because it's so, so important, but here we are. Um... There's estimates as high as 30 to 50% for the amount of people who potentially don't get the recommended sleep, which is seven to nine hours for, um, for adults, for healthy adults. So sleep is either a predictor of or a symptom of pretty much every single mental health disorder. Now we could easily stop here because that says so, so much about how important sleep is. It's involved in absolutely everything. It's a fundamental core part of the function of the brain. So when people attend therapy, for example, and they're struggling with their, their whatever aspect of their mental health, one of the things that a therapist or should do really, but mostly will do, um, is ask about those basics and make sure that they're in check. Make sure that, that you have your sleep in check and that you know that's not one of the contributors because they know that sleep has such a big contribution towards positive mental health. What I'm going to do, if that wasn't enough, that it's involved in every mental health disorder, what I'm going to do is uh, present you with some of the, the facts that might actually help you realize the extent or the importance um, of, of sleep towards mental health, and then, in turn, some tips to improve it. So this one I put up as part of my weekly quiz recently, but it's, um, it's really incredible to think what sleep can do for our stress levels and our emotional reaction. So in a sleep study done in 2007, um, it found that the amygdala, right, which is the area of the brain that has, it has a role to play in emotion, it initiates the fight or flight response, which is the stress response and the anxiety response. It was 60% more reactive after no sleep compared to participants who got the appropriate amount of sleep. And that's just one night. So what this means is that being sleep deprived can impact our mood and how we react to um, emotional stimulus in our environment after just one single night. Um, long term then, of course, that, that's like I said, that's just one night, but long term or chronic sleep deprivation can mean further mental health kind of difficulties. Another stat, uh, out of all the hundreds of thousands of participants in sleep studies, um, the grand total of people who could have five hours or less of sleep 
and not show any cognitive deficits is zero. Not a single person who's ever been tested in a research study has shown no brain deficits from five hours or less of sleep. So if you're one of those people who thinks, oh, well, look, I do so much of my day, I feel way better, uh, I get more done, more productive with only four and a half hours sleep, let me tell you now that you are not working to your full potential. You're about 15 times more likely to get in a car accident and your chances of developing mental health disorder and are pretty much significantly higher than, than someone who gets the appropriate amount of sleep. Um, I often see on platforms like social media but specifically on LinkedIn where people people claim that less than five hours sleep is like some type of biohack they say oh look I've got up at 4am every morning for this many weeks and look what's happened let me tell you now that that is not good advice to be following um, some of the signs that you might be struggling with your sleep or that you're sleep deprived are that you're more moody or you're more irrational you might have trouble concentrating um, if you have a dependency or a, res uh, a reliance on caffeine, that's another one. I think that's a really important one that uh, I'll, I'll talk about in a second. If you have trouble with your memory, um, because obviously sleep has a massive role to play in memory. If you feel fatigued or lethargic uh, an awful lot or it's chronic or ongoing. And then if you can fall asleep shortly after you wake, it's likely that you're struggling with your sleep. But like I said, I think the caffeine one is, is one that we miss an awful lot. Um, it's definitely a big one. It might actually, your caffeine intake might actually be masking the fact that you're sleep deprived because of how strong a drug it is. And we, we kind of forget that it is a psychoactive sub substance. It has an impact on, on the brain. Anyway, um, in order to get better sleep, uh, it's heavily recommended that you follow these recommendations that I just mentioned. Um, specifically in, uh, in relation to coffee, um, avoiding caffeine at least six to eight hours before bed and also try and I don't know, when i say try i know loads of people won't do this but even just monitoring it or being aware of it but try and stick to the recommended um the recommended limits i think i think it's 300 milligrams a day for healthy adults it could be 400 milligrams don't quote me on that I probably should have done my research before i came on and just winged it anyway this range obviously depends on a host of things but generally that's kind of the standard area as far as i'm aware of the recommended intake um i'm not going to go into detail about which all the different sleep things all the ones that i just mentioned i'm not going to go into detail on why each one is important if you want more details i'm more than happy to answer questions on instagram i do have a sleep post as well um but i think another one that is important to do is is going to sleep and waking up at the same time um it's basically set your body clock in line with your schedule uh i think a, a really cool experiment that i tend to do in my in my sleep talks when i'm talking to people is in order to find out what time you should be going to bed at, find your wake time and count back eight or nine hours. And often this really scares people. If you got up at 6 a.m., that means you should probably be going to bed between nine and 10 o'clock. And that is, to a lot of people, crazy. Um, but it is really, really important. Then also another one can be um, blue light for our screens. Uh, it reduces the production of melatonin, which is the chemical that kickstarts our sleep cycle. Also impacts brain waves during sleep, so get rid of those, get rid of the screens. Don't nap too early before bed. This basically reduces a thing called adenosine, and that's a chemical that helps us feel tired. So if you're napping close to bed or for too long during the day, it's gonna reduce that. Um, what else do we need to avoid or do? Alcohol, that's an important one. Uh, it's not a sleep aid, it's a sedative. They are not the same thing 
alcohol also impacts uh, your REM sleep, which is vital for uh, emotional health and mental health. Nicotine impacts sleep um, and stress impacts sleep. So if you want to tackle your sleep, a couple of those things, people generally don't realize the impact that it does have on their sleep. And if you want to change your sleep, it's best to tackle the kind of root cause. Anyway, um, if you want to make some changes, you need to be honest with yourself and, and put those kind of tactics into play. Like I said, I'm more than happy to answer any sleep hygiene questions on my Instagram if you want to shoot me a message, but I'm not going to into it on uh, I'm not going into it in detail today. Um, because I always see people saying, oh, look, I've tried everything, but they're on their phone and they put up Instagram stories at 1 a.m. So you need to be honest with yourself. And if you want to better your sleep, everything that I've mentioned there, but also my post on Instagram will go into more detail about what you need to do. And these all have a significant impact on your sleep. So make those changes. The next day-to-day -day tip, um, something you can do is socializing. So being connected to other people. In some studies of mental health uh, outcomes and relationships, there's absolutely a correlation between having close relationships and socializing and having positive mental health. Social support is often used as like a control method um, in mental health studies. So in studies, they compare a mental health treatment, for example, like let's say antidepressants or maybe uh, psychotherapy to a control group who get social support. It's a social so support group. But it's surprising that um, the social support group can often make improvements in those studies due to the fact that social support is, is important for benefiting your mental health. As well as that, there's plenty of research around there um, about social isolation and how that can be a pretty big negative in contributing to mental health issues as well. So it's important to note that we are social animals as much as people say, oh, I don't care what people think of me and I'm fine being alone, we are social people and there is some part of us at least that needs you know, acceptance or not even acceptance, engagement with other people and just that kind of socializing aspect, even if it's in you know, small, minuscule amounts. I think for um, the social media generation, especially, um, especially people my age, there's this kind of misconception that being connected online is the exact same as hanging out with somebody in person, but there's no evidence to suggest that at the moment. And what it looks like um, from the research that I've read anyway, is that in-person close relationships are just more beneficial for whatever reason for promoting your positive mental health. So don't be kind of fooled that you have lots of friends on, I don't know, lots of Facebook friends and you talk to people a lot on WhatsApp. It can still be quite a lonely place if you don't have that in-person social engagement. Um, another thing you can do, obviously it doesn't have to be daily, but at your own leisure, is try and stay connected with your friends, but surround yourself with people who promote who you are. So people who are close to your values and make you feel good about yourself. Um, just something, As I, look, as I said, someone who stays true to your values, like the, fur the further away, how do I put this? The further away we live from what our true values are, the more kind of anxiety and stress that that could create. So living a life that's in line with what you believe in and who you are can be really important. Um, not always just being under pressure to be someone else. Like, like I said earlier about comparison, not always striving to be somebody else. You often hear people talk about trying to impress people on social media and I've seen it myself, but people taking down posts because it didn't get enough engagement or didn't get a response or didn't get the response that they wanted. These are examples of you living by someone else's expectations and someone else's values. 
And if you're constantly trying to put up the post that gets the most engagement, gets the most likes, even though that's not who you are as a person, it could absolutely take its toll. So, like I said, the further away our lives are from our core beliefs and our, our core values, the more strain that it could cause from our mental well-being. Now, I kind of got away from the fact that socializing is important, but what I'm trying to say is it's important to surround yourself with like-minded people um, and be social, even if it's only a handful of times during the week. As well as that, um, being social and talking can be such a good structure for expression and support uh, if anything significant ever did come up, and I'm going to talk about expression later on. Um, but it's not just being social, but it's also feeling supported and secure and being able to rely on other people in that kind of um, relationship. So, um, yeah, social, being social, being connected with other people, um, really important. So even if it's only a couple of times a week, try and schedule it into your um, to your schedule as, as best you can. The next thing I'm going to talk about is movement. Now, I say movement and not exercise because people get the impression that exercise has to be going to the gym has to be oh i have to get a pt or i have to do a hit or you know they they assume that it's it's bigger than it is it doesn't have to be any of those things so some of the research suggests that there have been um, measurable improvements in depressive symptoms from super basic like um government guidelines and those guidelines were 30 minutes brisk walking three times a week the reason I don't say exercise is because you can walk to work, you can briskly walk to the shop instead of driving, you can walk the dog more often, you can incorporate movement or more movement into your life without having that financial strain, without having the effort of going to a gym or a class or without having to like up, basically uproot your whole daily routine. Now, <laughs> this is where when I talk to people and, and express how you can implement into your day-to-day -day routine, this is where people go, well, why would I walk to work? It'd take me twice as long, blah, blah, blah. And this is something that I used to do myself. But what it's about is, is seeing where your priorities lie. So if your own personal health is less important than the thing you might have to compromise for, reflect on that. Ask yourself, what is really more important? My health, my mental well-being, or, for example, I couldn't go to the gym, I had housework to do. I was washing the dishes this morning or it could even be something less I guess basic <laughs> like watching the second episode of whatever series you're into right now ask yourself what is more important is your health or your mental well-being worth compromising to watch the second episode of the series or get the housework done or whatever that thing that you're compromising might be I also understand that sometimes those things are needed of course Sometimes you do need to watch the whole Netflix documentary in one go, and that's fine, but it is about balance. If you're never getting enough movement or enough exercise in, then it might be worth trying to compromise something else. That's if you're never getting it in. So make that compromise sometimes, but obviously there's going to be times when other things take kind of priority. I'm a believer that we can make time for the things that are important to us, and more often than not, um, there is a way if you if you really look hard enough, but again, that's kind of up to the individual. Some people might not be able to see what is and what isn't available to them. Um, they might be kind of inflexible in the way they look at it, but again, depends on the individual. So in terms of getting more activity in, um, there are, like I said, benefits from 30 minutes, three times a week. If you were to guess off the top of your head how much that is out of a 168 hour week, 
what kind of percentage would you think? Because it's actually less than 1%. It's actually 0.89%. Um, and if you compare that to a 40 hour work week, um, you know, that's essentially 25% of your whole week. It's really absolutely nothing to try and incorporate three 30 minute um, exercise sessions, I guess, a week, or try and incorporate it day to day if you can. But it really is minuscule when you look at it like that. In terms of the power of exercise and what it actually does to your mental well-being, it's probably one of the best natural resources for stress management behind sleep. If you look at some of the exercise and depression research, it's absolutely astounding. Exercise is actually one of the recommended treatment options if you check out the NHS website for mild to moderate depression. And the reason for that is that exercise has been shown to be at least as effective as antidepressant medication in tackling depression. So when you're thinking of how powerful implementing movement and exercise is into your routine, think of the impact that it has in terms of fighting the most common psychiatric disorder, the most common mental health disorder, and also think of how important exercise must be if it has the same strength and power in treating that disorder as the most prescribed psychiatric medication or the most prescribed mental health drug. It's as effective as that. That's how important exercise can be. Obviously for some people, it, it doesn't work for everybody, similar to the way that, um, similar to the way that antidepressant medication doesn't work for everybody, but at, they essentially work at the same rate. It works at the same um, frequency. So exercise has the ability to actually build mental resilience. Aside from all its physical benefits, it has clear psychological benefits too. So if you're kind of on the fence about exercise and how important it is, I don't think I need to say much more about, about exercise. It really, really is important. So try and get at least those minimum requirements in. And the last thing I'm going to talk about, well, kind of the last thing I'm going to talk about, is emotional expression and journaling. Um, journaling, again, is really popular amongst some people. I see it a lot um, through my social media that people enjoy journaling and they find it helpful. There's mountains of literature posted or, or published, even posted, um, about uh, emotional expression and the importance of it. And one way that we can express our emotion as well as through our friends is by journaling. So writing down what's stressing us out, what's bothering us, those kind of things. Write, writing down your, your stressful events. Again, it's not rocket science. There's no magic trick here. We know that expressing yourself has a considerable impact of relieving that kind of psychological tension and that strain. And that's why the message within mental health for so, so long has been to speak up about what's bothering you. You always hear it. Talk about it. Speak up. You know, share your story. With the way technology is, we're constantly on our devices. So part of this tip or this habit on expression is actually just giving yourself the opportunity to unwind and check in with yourself. Give yourself the opportunity to break down how you feel, um, really feel how you feel, if that makes sense. What are your thoughts at that time? And actually engage with, actually engage with your thoughts and your feelings by, by writing them down if necessary. It's so, so easy to distract yourself from the moment you wake up until the moment you fall asleep because we have phones that will distract us. We have the internet, we have technology. But one of the theories behind why expression is so important is that uh, inhibiting emotion, so not engaging with your emotions at all and kind of suppressing them a little bit or avoiding it, 
can be pretty harmful. And like I said, it's so easy to distract yourself from how you're feeling by going on your phone all day or watching an entire Netflix series that we don't even take a minute to process how we're feeling at any given time. So give yourself the chance to really interact with how you're feeling and what you're thinking. Expression and journaling essentially gives you the opportunity to do this. So does things like um, mindfulness, for example, and meditation. But there's such a strong body of evidence and a body of research behind um, expressive journaling interventions um, that show that it's, it's beneficial for psychological well-being. Whereas mindfulness is slightly different in terms of the mechanisms behind it and how it works. So I'm not going to go into that right now. Anyway, I'm going to give you an example of one of the emotional um, expression interventions and what participants were asked to write about. And much of them are, are pretty similar. Again, it's not a secret. Uh, expression is, is essentially what it says on the tin. You express yourself. If you're interested in what journaling entails, this is kind of the basics of, of many of, of these interventions. Obviously, time scale differs, but it's essentially this. The instructions were to write down your deepest thoughts and feelings about a difficult topic or event, as well as writing down what you tell yourself to help you deal with it, or how you're making sense of it, or how you're trying to cope with it. Now, as I said, the interventions differ in terms of how long you should write for, how consistently, you know, all these different variables. But if you break it down, it's essentially expressing yourself as in-depth as you can and kind of the thought processes around it. And if you're someone who struggles with expressing yourself, for example, in person to, you know, if you're someone who finds it difficult to talk openly with even someone like a close friend, but also professionals or, you know, someone who, who should be respected. For example, if you're a teenager talking to an adult, if you find that difficult, um, if you have any kind of barriers to talking openly, this, this kind of process should be or, or could be useful at least. Um, even when I was running the initiative this month for mental health awareness on my Instagram page, um, basically if, you, if you're not on my Instagram page, I was getting people to submit their stories to me and I would publish them anonymously on my story to help people understand that, um, understand that everybody suffers and this is how people suffer and this this is what it feels like to struggle with your with your mental health. So I was getting people to submit those stories, but some people were actually telling me after they submitted their story how um, how much of a relief it was to even write their story and, and show it to somebody else or share it with somebody else. So people were noticing it even as a once-off thing that they just did to to you know promote mental health awareness on on my particular page but it's evident in all of the body of research that there is that that this can be really really helpful the last thing i'm going to mention really briefly is food and getting the right nutrition i'm not going to go deep on this now because it's such a broad topic it's such a contentious topic and everyone seems to have an opinion on it whether they're qualified or not anyway all i'll say is that for mental health the Mediterranean diet has been shown to be the best in terms of mental health. It's the only one with really strong evidence behind it. It's not a cure, but it's a contributor and it's something that um, that you can make changes around to benefit your mental health day to day. If you don't know what the Mediterranean diet is, Google it. I'm not a dietitian and I'm not, um, you know, I'm going to stay in my lane here and not step on anyone's toes. Um, but that's all I have to say about diet. Diet can be really important for um for making you feel good and just benefiting your mental health day to day. So just as a recap, um, I spoke about gratitude practice, I spoke about sleep, uh, socializing and staying connected, um, I spoke about expression and journaling, 
and I spoke a little bit about movement. Um, I said that already, didn't I? These are all things that you can um, that you can do yourself to promote well-being, and uh, basically each of them individually have been shown to contribute on some level, at least, to promoting positive mental well-being. They're not a replacement for formal treatment. If you're struggling, go and get advice from a qualified, trained professional or go to your GP. Um, other than that, that's all for this episode of the Head First Podcast. If you've got this far, congratulations. Um, check out my Instagram at headfirstzero. I'm more than happy to answer any questions you have on the content of this podcast or any mental health related questions. Hope you all enjoyed it and I will see you next time.